are continuing in our series, Let Us Pray. We have looked at prayers for fruitfulness in the introduction. We've looked at prayers of praise. We've looked at prayers for love, prayers for knowledge and intelligence of God's Word and who He is. We've looked at prayers of all over Scripture. And today we're looking at a type of prayer that you would probably not associate as a good thing, but I'm going to argue this morning that it is. You know, hiking sounds like a wonderful idea. Hiking sounds like a wonderful idea. You get in your mind that you're going to see beautiful sights. You're going to experience these extreme, high, joyful moments. You're going to be walking in the beauty of God's nature. But rarely do we encourage others to go hiking, telling them about all the ridiculous hardships that go into hiking. When Eden was about a year old, we were in Colorado, and my brother-in-law, who was very enthusiastic to go hiking, said, hey, why don't we make this hike? It's about seven miles, and um, man, it'll just be beautiful. It's going to be great. It'll be just, just us adults. We won't take any kids with us, so nobody has to be on the back, you know, or any of that kind of thing. So this is probably 10 years ago or so, and... So we're like, yeah, let's go. Let's go hiking. So we get out there and we start hiking, and it doesn't take us long to realize that this, is, this hike's going to be hard. This, this hike's going to be difficult. You know, it's not just going to be a straight path that you just walk up the hill. You're going to have impediments all in your way. You're going to have to, to, we're tripping over tree limbs. We're tripping over rocks. You, you, know, you plant your foot and you think it's a, a firm place to plant your foot and then you push off and the rock kind of crumbles underneath you. You, you. you reach a point where you realize that, you know, if I stray off this path just a little bit, I die because that is a hundred foot cliff that I'm looking down at. You know, when, and we get up to the top part and you get to the timberline, right, where the, the trees stop and now it's just open and, and you realize, man, this wind sure is blowing hard. Right in my face. I was hoping this, you know, and then there was this rock that overlooked this one area. And so if you wanted to get the best picture, you know, you had to sit on this rock, but then you realized, you know, the, the wind's blowing hard. And if you lose your balance off this rock, once again, you die. And so... Nobody encouraged me at the time to go rock climbing with any mention of those things. Now, Neil, we're going to go rock climbing. There's a chance, chance that it ends in your death. Want to go? You know, that's not how we encourage people to go hiking. We talk about all the wonderful things that will come with hiking. Well, hiking through life with Jesus... It's sometimes kind of like that because we, we tell people, and, and it's true and it's right and we should, that real joy and real satisfaction and real happiness is found in Jesus Christ. Come to him and you will receive joy, you will receive forgiveness, your life will be forever different and changed and glorious. And all of that is true. But what we must remember and what we must tell people is that there is a constant drumbeat throughout Scripture for those who are going to follow Jesus. 
you will experience trouble and hardships. You walking with Jesus will not be easy, so count the cost. So the emphasis on joy is balanced out with an emphasis on tribulation and affliction and trouble and suffering. And those of us who have walked with Christ for any long period of time, we know this to be true. Our walk with Jesus, our hiking with Jesus down that trail is filled with joy and beauty and we see wonderful things and we experience wonderful things and at the same time we recognize it is hard and it is troubling and it is sacrifice and it is work and it is difficult. And we have three passages of scripture that I just want to mention real quick. I don't even want you to turn there, but I just want to mention them real quick because Jesus calls the disciples to follow him, and they find out really quick that this wasn't just going to be an easy joy ride to the kingdom. In Mark chapter 4, verses 35 and through 41, Jesus takes the disciples and he puts them on a boat, and he goes and sleeps underneath, and the storm comes. And they think their life is over. Now, Jesus didn't have to put them through that. And yet, in the moment, this situation, they were afraid they were going to die. And being a disciple over and over again gets us into situations of trouble, trouble that we would otherwise not have been in if Jesus wasn't involved. You see, those boys, they knew that sea. They knew when storms were coming. And if Jesus wasn't with them, they probably would have said, you know, we probably shouldn't go out today. But following Jesus got them in the boat and got them in a storm. They would have avoided that if Jesus hadn't been involved. Acts chapter 16, God gives Paul a vision. And in this vision, he is called to go to Macedonia. So you would think, oh man, God is fixing to do something wonderful here. So he goes to Macedonia and he begins preaching the gospel. And he is attacked by people in the city and he is stripped naked and beaten almost to death. He wasn't planning on going to Macedonia. Following Jesus got him beaten. God's service oftentimes will mean trouble for you. Luke chapter 21, Jesus just flat out says this to the disciples. Before you all this day, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Think about what he just told them. Because you follow me, you're going to go to prison. You're going to be delivered up in synagogues. You're going to be brought before kings and governors and accused because you follow me. And he says, but this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds. 
Not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries to, will be able to withstand or contradict. And you will be, de be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated for my namesake. All of this could be avoided if they didn't follow Jesus. See, following Jesus puts us in situations. Jesus is saying, be realistic, guys. Trouble is coming. It is coming for the whole world, but it is especially coming to the people of God because you are disciples of Jesus Christ. The truth is, when we look at our lives, our lives in following Jesus, there are things that we can find to complain about. Now, most of the time when we think about complaining, we don't like to be around the person who complains. The griper, right? The person who gripes. Woe is me, fault finding, difficult. I hope as we look in more detail in just a moment, in Psalm 55 especially, I hope that you will see that when I make the statement that following Jesus, we will find things to complain about, I hope you will see that that is a biblical, true statement. It is not wrong for you to offer prayers of complaint to God. It is not wrong. The attitude in which we do it and the manner in which we do it will reveal greatly our heart, our mind. So the question is, what is the proper place for praying prayers of complaint. So let's look at biblical complaining. And I, I want to do this primarily from Psalm 55. If we have time, maybe I'll go to Job for something as well. But in Psalm 55, I just want you to turn there. And I'm going to read this in sections all the way through to verse 17. I'll comment as I read a section. I'll, I'll read a section and I'll comment on it and I'll read a section and I'll comment on it. Now, we are constantly finding in Scripture troubling times that happens to, God, happens to God's people. And here's what's amazing. When in Scripture God's people find themselves in troubling times, we often see them biblically complaining without God judging them for it. They find no, especially in the Psalms, the psalmist find no problem whatsoever to be completely free to complain to God. Scripture does not seem to regard these prayers of complaint as anything other than wisdom. When we look at the Psalms, we see people saying, I feel hopeless, helpless, isolated. God, do something. And God never says, how dare you bring that to me? How dare you complain like that to me? People say, Lord, how long do I have to wait before you make this right? You don't see God 
bashing them over the head for bringing that up. So let's look at Psalm 55 to see an example of this. Verse 1, give ear to my prayer, O God. Hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. Because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horrors overwhelms me. Now notice what David has no trouble calling his prayer in verse 2. A complaint. David says in verse 2, I am restless in my complaint. In other words, I... When I'm bringing this to you, I don't have any peace about it. I'm restless. I'm troubled by this. And I'm bringing this complaint to the one person I know can deal with it and handle it. You, oh God. And and probably verses 2 through 5 gives us the greatest expression of pain that David has expressed this far in the Psalms. Up to this point in Psalm 55, we really have never heard David speak with such deep, expressive language as we do here. This is probably the strongest we've got. I mean, he says in verse 2, I am restless. In verse 4, I'm in anguish. In verse 4, he says, the terrors of death assail me. He says in verse 5, fear and trembling are upon me. And again in verse 5, horror overwhelms me. This is probably the strongest language we've got from David up to this point of the situation that he is in. He is restless. He is in anguish. The terrors of death assail him. He is in fear and trembling and horror is overwhelming him. And then we see something in verse 6 that's a little shocking coming from David. David is a fierce warrior king, is he not? I mean, when you're talking, I mean, God said, listen, I can't even have you build my temple. You got so much blood on your hands being a warrior king. You you can't build my temple. You're just going to collect all the money for it. I mean, David is a warrior king. David doesn't shy down from fights. David's not looking, David doesn't look to get out of things really quick, you know? Like me, if if, if there's like, you know, a dust up, I'm like, how can I talk myself out of this? (laughs) David's like, I mean, if if we got to go, we can go. We can, we can, we can fight if we have to. But look at what David says in verse 6 through 8. This tells us how deep he is in pain here. He says, And oh, I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. 
Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the waging, raging wind and tempest. What is he saying? I wish I could just get out of here and, and get away from this. This is so bad and so difficult and so tough. The, talk of horrors, terror, trembling, anguish, restlessness. I don't want to fight this. I just want to run from it. That's not David. So this tells you David is going through it. For David to say, I just want to run. You know, in psychology, they talk about the fight or flight, right? Like you, you come up against a situation and it's like, what do you do? Do you fight it or do you fly? Now, I think David, for the most part, David's probably going to be a fighter. Not in this situation. He looks at this situation and it's so difficult. All he wants to do is run. He said, if I, I wish I had wings like a dove, I would just fly away through the wilderness and just be rid of all this and get away. Free from the trouble. Verse 9. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls. And iniquity and trouble are within its ruin is in the midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive for evil is in the dwelling place and in their hearts. David now describes the enemy from without and from within. But the troubling thing about this enemy is, is that this enemy is someone who has been close to him. And he calls upon the Lord for divine judgment. He says, God, I, I can't deal with this. I can't fight this. I can't battle this. This is not something I can take care of. You are going to have to come and deal with this, God. And he's calling for divine judgment to take place. And, and he demonstrates his trust in God in verse 16. He says, but I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. What again does he call this? My complaint. My complaint to God. He has no trouble laying it all out for God. You know, sometimes when we pray, that's why I love that video that we, we have at the very beginning. It says, how many times have you prayed? Because so many times when we pray, it's like we're hiding stuff from God. Don't we? It's like we come to God, but I don't want to be too honest with him. What? He already knows everything in your mind, everything in your heart, everything going on in your life. Do we need to go back to Psalm 139? He already knows it all. So why do we feel the need to not express it? It's like sometimes I'm, I'm real angry and then I, I go to God and I have to act like I'm not. I just wonder if, if Jesus is like just sitting in my office going, now, Neil, what's up with this real holy prayer you're trying to pull right now? This real, you know, pious. Let's just be real. You're mad right now, Neil. 
You're a little, you're a little frustrated. You're a little angry. You need. And, and, or we're struggling with some sin and we come to God and it's like we don't even want to name the sin because we're embarrassed about it. We don't even want to name the sin because we, we, we're like, well, you know, I, I, I. Jesus saw you do it. He heard what you said. And then we come to God and we just want to like act like we don't. Well, if it, maybe if I don't say it, you know, I'll just kind of forget about it. And it'll... You know what I mean? That's what we do, though. Maybe I'm the only one that does it. But I think it's what we do, not just me. But David was really good at just laying it all out there. Lord, this is where I'm at. And I'm bringing it to you because I don't know where else to go with it that will be meaningful and helpful. And I feel like you need to do something about this because what's happening is not right. What I'm going through is hard and difficult and I want it made right. Just real quick, I want to mention Job. Job, especially beginning in Job 10, Job begins to really complain to God. I mean, really complain to God to the point that you're reading it and you're like, whoa, Job, you think you need to back up a little bit, right? You're reading it. And you're like, whoa, Job, watch it. Getting a little close to the line there, buddy. And, and I read, I read some of it and I'm like, well, just turn there with me. Turn to Job real quick. I want you to experience the the watch it Job moments with me. He says in verse 10, I mean, verse 1 of chapter 10, I loathe my life. That's the way he starts the prayer. I hate my life. I will give my free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress and despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Jump down to verse 8. Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and I will return, and you will return me to the dust. Look at verse 11. You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love and you care. Your care has preserved my spirit. Verse 18. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I had died before an eye had ever seen me. And were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. Is this the same Job that God describes to Satan as my servant, blameless, upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? It is the same man. But now we're dealing with the man who's going through it. He's going through it. And he takes his complaint to God. He takes his complaint 
to the only safe possible source, God. There is nowhere else he can go. His wife's saying, just go die. His friends are saying, this is all your fault. He has got no safe place to go and just pour it all out. So he goes to the one safe place, God, and he pours it all out. And then it doesn't get any better. Chapter 22, we see some of the same kind of language. Job wondering aloud, why is God doing this to me? Doesn't God tell me that he loves me? Doesn't God know what I'm going through? Now, we know how the book ends, don't we? We get to read the end of the book. But Job doesn't, he doesn't know in the midst of this how this thing's going to turn out. God doesn't explain himself to Job. But you know what he does do? Responds to Job. I would argue that when we come to God with biblical prayers of complaint, God always responds. Always. I want to talk about the rationale of our complaint for a minute. Let me give you what I, when I say biblical complaining, let me define it for you. Biblical complaining is a kind of speech that blends lamentation. Lamentation is when we are raging or glooming and despairing over what is bad. We're frustrated about what is being done, what is hurtful. That's lamentation. So biblical complaining is taking lamentation with supplication. Supplication is begging and pleading for someone to do something. So biblical complaining is when we take lamentation. This is what I'm upset about. This is what I'm despairing about. This is what I'm mad about. This is what is bad. This is what is frustrating. This is what is harmful. And we're taking it to a source to say, please do something about this. That's biblical complaining. And for better or for worse, here's the problem in America. Really all of the West. We have this idea that we have to separate our, our emotional selves from our rational selves. And what we do is we say, okay, what I need to do, squash all the feelings so then I can go to God with what's logical. And we find that we can't do that. And then we despair because we don't know what to do. I have all these emotions. I have all these feelings. I have all these things going on in me. But I know I shouldn't feel frustrated or angry or mad or upset or, or hurt or, or bitter. So, so I'm just going to try to squash all that so I can go to God. And then what we find is we can't do that. And so we don't go to God. Facts. That's what we do. Because we've been influenced by the enlightenment that says we are rational creatures and logical creatures. Put away the emotion. That like, like Platonism. Put, a, put away the emotion. Here's the problem with that, church. That's not what God wants us to be. God did not make us to separate all that stuff out. God says, no, I made you to be emotional and rational and logical. I've made you to be this whole person. You, you can't separate it out. J.I. Packer says it like this. He says, the idea that full humanness involves the habitual stifling of strong emotions 
so that reason may rule in unbroken calm belongs to the legacy of Platonism and post-Renaissance Western culture rather than from the Bible. In other words, God does not ask us to stifle all of our emotions so that we can come calmly before God. It's not what the Bible tells us to do. What God says is, come as you are. If you're mad, bring your anger to me. If you're frustrated, bring your frustration to me. If you are sad, bring your sadness to me. If you are despairing, bring your despair and your depression and your anxiety and bring it to me. You're not going to be able to stifle it. All you're going to do is make yourself mentally ill. I'm telling you. That's all that's going to happen. Take it to God. That's what Christianity wants us to do. That's what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible does not describe the life of a person as a body and a soul as if it is at war with emotions and mind. Instead, the Bible describes a unity of a person, body, soul, mind, emotions, and they unite in the heart. And God says, bring your heart to me. I am your loving Abba Father. Bring your heart to me. I want you to think about how all this works. When God created Adam and Eve, they were without sin. Once they fell, all of creation fell with it. Now the earth is fallen and unredeemed. And because this world is fallen and unredeemed, things are not right. Correct? Things are not right. So we're walking through life, we're living our life, we're doing our thing, and something happens that's not right. It's not just, it's not good, it's not loving, it's not pleasing. It, it will not be a part of the, the fullness of the kingdom of God and the new creation. And now we are experiencing that. You know what God wants us to do? Here's what biblical complaining is. It's coming to God saying, God, this is not right, this is not good, this is not pleasing, this is not how things should be. And you're the only one that could do anything about it. And I'm asking you, why aren't you doing something about it? Please do something about it. I'm waiting for you to do something about it. Our complaining is not some selfish pity party. That's not biblical complaining. That's the kind of person we don't like being around. The pity party person. Woe is me, woe is me. Everything's terrible. Biblical complaining is not a selfish pity party. Biblical complaining is when we see things not being right and we take it to the one that we know is making all things right. So, when we see with newly regenerated hearts, when we see a distance between what God is going to do and where something is now, and we see a distance between the two, we're coming to God with complaining, saying, God, we want this to be made glorified. We want this to be new creation. We want this to be, we want this fixed and righted because that's what you do. So biblical complaining should be an ongoing part of the Christian's life until Jesus comes back because we're always going to find things that aren't right. We should always be going to God. God, this isn't right. 
Please work. Please do something with it. Now, as far as I can tell, the range of complaint in Scripture are at least fourfold. I'm just going to give them to you. I'm not going to speak a whole lot on them. I just want to give them to you. Number one, opposition. You are going to find that there are people who are in opposition to the gospel and to you living for the gospel. When that happens, things are not, are not right. Take it to God. When people oppose you and your righteous living, they oppose you for being holy. They oppose you because you have the gospel. Take it to God with biblical complaint. Lord, I should not be experiencing this. This isn't right for them to hate me and to treat me this way. I know I'm realistic. I know that it's here. But God, I want you to fix it. I want you to end it. I want you to do something about this. Second, deprivation. When you are being deprived of the basic necessities of life. When there is starvation and famine, when there is difficulty from the basic needs of life, then we go to God and we say, God, you you promised to meet all of our needs. It's not right that this is happening. This is not what your new creation and your kingdom will look like, God. Please intervene and work. Bring fruitfulness in this situation. Number three, isolation. Man, again, we're seeing all these, by the way, in the Psalms. Isolation, being separated and isolated and pushed away, being lonely, being, being, if if the new creation is going to be the community of God and his kingdom, then isolation should not be a part. When we see isolation, that's not right, Lord. We, we want to fix that, Lord. Please work and do something. And number four is depression. There will be no depressed people on the new earth. And that's why we want God to fix it now. And lastly, the response of God to our complaint. How does God respond when his... People complain. Of course, we've got to start by understanding that God works all things for our good. Everything that he sovereignly allows and puts in your life is there so that you can look more like Jesus. Here's two basic ways I think God responds I hope we'll be encouraged by these. Number one, God sustains. God may not change the circumstance. That might not be his timing. Oh, oh, he will make it right. We know that. It just may not be his timing to make it right now. He's going to make it right, but it might not be right now. And so in the midst of that, God will sustain. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through 10. Here is what God says to Paul when Paul's complaining about his thorn in the flesh. He takes it to God three different times. God, this hurts. This isn't good. This isn't right. I feel like this is preventing me from doing gospel work. You're the only one that can take it away. Please take it away. 
And here's what he says about what God did. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, Paul says, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God wasn't mad at Paul for Paul bringing it up. He wasn't mad at Paul because Paul complained. But he wanted to teach Paul a very important lesson. Paul, listen, I'm not taking this away. I've put this in your life for a very specific purpose. And I, I want you to know that when you are weak, I will be your strength. When you feel like you've got nothing, I will be your everything. So Paul says, so I learned, I learned how to be content with my weaknesses. I, I, I learned how to be content with the insults and the hardships and the persecution and calamities. Here's why. Because every time I felt weak, I know God was making me strong. No, Paul, I'm not going to heal your thorn in the flesh. But by grace, I'm going to keep you sustained. I'm going to keep you going. Secondly, God keeps us trusting. You know, when, when I flip to the end of Job, when God starts talking to Job, he's like, gird your loins like a man. I, I used to think that the only thing that was happening was God was putting Job in his place. How dare you question me? How dare you bring up what I'm doing to you? Uh, I'm God, you're not, and keep your mouth shut. I used to think that was, that was kind of it. Like God was saying, I'm sovereign, you're not, you're a man, I'm God. Deal with it. But the more and more I read Job and the more and more I think about Job and the more and more I study Job, the more I realize there's probably, I think there's something else going on. You see, in Job 40 and 41, God starts listing off everything he's created. Right? That's not what God does. He's like, where were you when I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. Look at every, look at all of this wonderful stuff I've created. Then he starts talking about all these animals. Look how I, I do this with this animal. And look how I do this with this animal. And, and here's what I think God is saying to Job. Not just you need to be put in your place, which I'm not saying that's not part of it. But I think this is what he's saying to Job. Job, if I am sovereign over inanimate objects like the sea and mountains and rivers, and rain, and snow. If I am sovereign over animal life, and I control them, and I, I bring them food, and I, I take care of them, Job, do you not think I'll be sovereign over your life too? Do you not think I'm going to take care of you? Do you not think I'm going to... As much loving care as I take for inanimate objects and animals, don't you think I've got loving, sovereign care for you too, Job? <clears throat> C. 
See all the wisdom that I have at my command with this other stuff? Think about how I'm using my wisdom for you, Job. By this, God is answering Job's complaints. In our Sunday school small group time this morning, Israel once again complained to God. They grumbled and they complained. We hate this stinking bread. And I read that and I think, okay, wait a minute, they're complaining. You're about to preach a message telling people to complain to God. They're complaining and poisonous snakes kill them. Right? You see my tension a little bit. But here's the difference. You see, they weren't lamenting with supplication. They were speaking against God. They were saying, God, you are not good. You are not loving. You do not take care for, care for us. You do not provide for us. You might as well have let the Egyptians rule us instead of you. What biblical complaining is, is to say really, is to complain in the very opposite way. God, this is not right. This is bad. This is, this is, not, a, this is not part of um, what your kingdom will be. And because you are good and loving and make all things right, because you care for me, you're the only one I can come to with this. You're the only one that can do anything about this. It's not speaking against God and accusing God. It's coming to God and saying, God, this is what's going on. I don't know where you are right now, but I know you're the only one that can do anything about it. And so I'm bringing it to you. You see the difference there between speaking against God in complaint and real biblical complaining that God always responds to with love? Isis in my class this morning, she brought up a great point. I kind of was previewing this and she brought up a great point she said she said you know I guess it would be like a kid or children coming to their parents asking for food it would really the way that they came at it would reveal their heart right so if they came up and they said when are y'all gonna make some food for us mom dad we're hungry and I listen I don't want what we've got in the pantry I'm tired, of, I'm tired of eating that same junk over and over and over again. Now I'm putting my spin on this. and not what ISIS all said, you know. <laughs> now me as a parent, I'm not, they're speaking against me at that point. They're not coming to me saying, I know, my, I know my parents love me, that they want to take care of me, they want to provide for me. That is an accusatory attack on their parents. That's what Israel was doing. But if my, if my children came to me and said, hey, uh, mom, dad, have y'all thought about what we're going to do for dinner? You know, um, we've kind of had the same thing every single night. Is there any way we can like maybe order pizza tonight, do something different? Um, now, all of a sudden, I'm like, well, I want to respond to that. That's a, a loving child coming to their parents saying, I know you are the ones that make these decisions. I know you're the ones that 
And sometimes we say, no, there's bagel bites in the, in the freezer. <laughs> sometimes we don't answer the way they want, right? And sometimes we say, yeah, let's order pizza tonight. The way that they approach with that, com with that complaint, right? They're still basically complaining, I don't want bagel bites. I'm tired of bagel bites. Can we get something else? But their heart in coming to their parents, you're the source who makes these decisions. Here's what we're bringing to you. And the way that then God responds to us is to sustain us, to keep us going if he doesn't change it. Right? That's what he does. He sustains us. increases our faith and says, listen, I got you. I know what you need when you need it. And I'll act when it is best for you to act. So let's stop putting on some kind of hypocritical, pious veneer when we come to God. And let's come to God the way David did. Let's come to God with our emotions and our mind and our wills. And let's bring that all to God, to the only one who can make things right. God, this isn't right, and you're the only one who can make it right.